0: Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses. And if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. Welcome to the Story Paths podcast about the stories we tell and the stories we live, which are often one and the same. Now, my guest today, among all the different people I've interviewed, is really one of the ones who brings this point home the most that the stories we tell and the stories we live are so interwoven. The myths that I'm inherited by religion or a scientific worldview from my family, from governments, from media, all these ways of viewing the world, these perspectives, these narrative frameworks affect the way I think. For example, if I take on the current scientific worldview explaining that reality started with an impersonal Big Bang, how does that affect my relationship with reality? If I take on A judeo-christian worldview about an omnipotent god creating the world in the beginning if i take on the story of adam and eve in the version where eve corrupts adam how does that affect my worldview how does it affect my relationship with women If I take on an extreme far right worldview, how does that affect how I relate with those who think differently from myself? If I take on an extreme far left worldview, how does that affect my relationship with members of my family who may see things differently? If I consider a great forest covering a mountain to be simply a resource to be turned into money, how does that affect my actions? If I consider that forest to be full of sentient spirits who depend on that habitat for their lives, how does that affect my actions? If I take on the implied stories within advertising that if I have many things I will be popular and happy, how does that affect my actions? And in a more personal, close to home way, if I feel myself to be basically unworthy until I prove myself otherwise, how does that affect my actions? If I have the story that the world is basically unsafe and unkind, how will that affect how I live in the world? Or what about the story that one of these aforementioned stories is the correct one, that there is a correct story, that if I can just find it, I'll be rightly situated. What if, as my guest asserts today, that these aforementioned stories are not really stories? They're not full-fledged enough. They don't give us enough room to really live inside, and so we might consider these stunted narratives of some kind. What if a story is less a particular perspective and more of an ecology of perspectives in interrelationship with each other? I am very glad to welcome today to the Story Paths podcast, Leah Lamb. Now I've been taking classes with Leah for last six or seven months or so. I'm part of a year long program that she's holding in the School for Sacred Storytelling, which she is the founder of. And this has been very interesting. I can speak uh, from personal experience that I'm thinking more and more in terms of story in terms of the frameworks of story, the patterns of story, I'm thinking of my life, and cultural teachings or cultural assumptions, cultural stories in terms of story. And this has been very helpful. I've got a quote here from Joe Lambert from the Story Center. He says, Leah lives in story. It resonates in her being. As a teller, as a writer and thinker, as an activist and world changer, as a contemporary artist rooted in the ancient, she knows the alchemy of myth and the miracle of life and the tangible magic of language performed so welcome to the story paths podcast, Leah. We've been wanting to do the interview for a while.'m very glad it's happening today.
1: Thank you, Theodore. It's such a treat to get to play with you in this way. And it's such a pleasure and a delight to have you in this, yeah, to have you in this space and to get to story with you.
0: What has been your road to storytelling? How has it come to be that you living in it, that you are, that you're leading a school in this?
1: I mean, it really starts off in a field in Vermont, I was an only child for the first eight years of my life. And um, my parents were very, very busy with their work. And I was at home on our farm a lot of time by myself. And back in those days, you know, like, uh, we didn't have the level of fear that we have right now or the level of helicopter parenting. And it was really like kids were just allowed to run and roam free. And so I roamed like a lot on our land and, and there weren't games and there wasn't anything to play with. I really sound like I'm like from Little House on the Prairie, but that was really part of my my growing up. Is that it was like a really different time in terms of, of stimulus, in terms of what could entertain a child. And to me, it was like hanging out with a creek and finding the bones of animals in the spring from what had died over the winter and finding my special trees and, and weeping over the flowers getting mowed, you know, when the fields finally had to be cleared. And it was a lot of time outside. It was a lot of time in nature and a lot of time for imagination. And it was really that space for imagination that created um, what would become a high-functioning coping mechanism because there was also a lot of loneliness. You know, there was just a lot of loneliness. And and so the stories really kept me company. And then it became around um, high-functioning coping when I moved. You know, I moved a lot. My parents separated. And so I would move different cities and different schools almost every year till I was in high school, being the new kid in town is really you know I wouldn't wish it on anybody and the books are what got me through because I didn't have I didn't have the kind of skills to like be strong on the playground and and it just wasn't me so it was like it was much easier just to go be with a book and read and escape. Was a place of beauty and joy and pleasure getting to learn about the world through people who were really studying it and really cared about it. Um, I think that I was really lucky to read a lot of really great authors early on that really made me fall in love with with life itself. And so I mean I was always into writing and I was always into theater, but then when my best friend committed suicide when I was in high school, I didn't know how to be with that grief. I didn't know what to do with it. And so I took it to my, my, my sanctuary, which was story. And I wrote a play and that play was produced in a playwriting festival. And um, that kind of just was like, that was it from then on. I mean, I just, I wanted to bring stories alive where I really learned the responsibility of storytelling, that what you put out comes back. I was just 15 years old trying to process my grief. I didn't realize that then I'd be responsible for standing with a lot of other people while they shared their grief with me. I really learned something in that process of, wow, this is magic. Something happens in this room when we we share together, when we experience a story together,
2: The road Of grief and sorrow Of ash and cold has been walked since days of old These times Told. there's wonders to behold, fragments to unfold, hey, 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 hey.
0: I'm hearing this uh shift in a way, from story as being partly escapism, you know partly something very healthy and deep as well, and something quite solitary to storytelling as being something very functional in our relations with each other and with the world that it really has an important place. It's fundamental. You're running the school for sacred storytelling. So I might ask you, what is a
1: sacred story? Hmm. Oh, it's a story that has life inside of it. You know, we use that word sacred. And my my dear friend, Matthew Stillman, was like, ah, what a bad word. (laughs) Sacred, it's like when you call one thing sacred, you're inherently inferring that something else is not sacred. You know, and when we say that something is sacred, we're saying, I see the divinity in you. I honor the life in you, I honor the spirit in you. So I would hope that one day we would just work sacred out of a job, you know, where it's so inherent in our way of being that we don't need the language anymore. But right now we do need that language because we do need to acknowledge in those rare moments when we're like, yes, I am seeing and respecting the life, like the wholeness of the life of this thing, where we say, wow, this is part of a living part of earth. And I, and I have reverence for it or in this way with a story and saying that, wow, this is, this has a spirit to it. There's a, there's, there's a life in the story. That's not just me. I am in a revelatory collaboration. I know a sacred story when like I feel more life, you know, I feel, I'm like, I get juiced. I'm like, yeah, I want to go exercise tomorrow. And yes, I'm going to quit coffee and sugar and, and oh my gosh, and run a, run a marathon while I'm at it, you know, and, and, What's happening is that I'm getting juiced for life itself. And that doesn't mean that a sacred story is uh, all happy, happy, joy, joy, rainbows and unicorns. You know, Life is Beautiful, that incredible movie, uh, which is about the Holocaust, is an extraordinary example of a sacred story. Inside of it is a story of how to get through the hardest of times. Inside of it is a story of love, of commitment. Inside of it is a story of how do we weave humor into the darkest elements of humanity? That story is acting as a guide. And stories, that's what they do. They guide us through the hardest times. They say, here, come this way. Yes, I'm going to take you into the darkest parts of life. Yes, I'm going to show you the shadows. Yes, I'm going to show you the hardest corners of humanity that none of us want to look at or experience ever again. But I'm going to take you out And I'm going to give you a little something extra that you didn't have before. So God forbid that ever happen again, you're going to have something that those before you didn't have. And you're going to have a story that guides you on how to go through this. What a great way to live a life, you know, you know, say, I am so committed to my fellow humans and planet that I'm going to commit my voice, my story, the way that I use my language and my words to help others around me through the beauty and through the darkness. Another great example um, that I just saw of this film called The Territory, and it's a documentary. And it's about what's happening in the Brazilian rainforest and this indigenous culture that's trying to protect their land. It's a hard story. It is a hard story. It's a scary story for all of us, but it's so beautifully told. They gave the camera over to the tribe that lives in that forest and you get to see the forest through their eyes. And so that story is woven with beauty and beauty feeds the soul. So it's like you can tell these hard stories, but when we give these aspects that respect and revere life inside of them and that's what they're woven, we can, we can become stronger and more courageous and more willing to confront more aspects of the wholeness of who we are as humans and what's happening on this planet through great storytelling.
0: In the documentary that Leah mentioned, The Territory, the filmmakers show different sides of what's going on there. From the perspective of the tribe living in that particular part of the Amazon, from the perspective of the farmers trying to earn a livelihood, grazing cattle on land that used to be rainforest, from the perspective of ecologically concerned people throughout the world, I may find myself, kind of by default, in a particular perspective, according to my upbringing, my culture, my desires, and so on. But I might really benefit from hearing the other perspectives so that we might work something out together. In the next part of this interview, we get into a story which is perhaps the biggest one in our times, and that is the story of climate change. And to call this a story isn't to say that climate change isn't happening. It's merely to point out that we are inhabiting some conceptual narrative framework in regards to these realities of what is happening on the planet, and that we are not helpless in how we choose to live into these times. And it might seem counterintuitive with such a grave topic, but it can be helpful to enter into this story and to play with the different roles to play with how it all fits together. To step back from the usual questions of who's winning the debate about the point of view that's correct or the narrative version that's correct, and just look at the narratives themselves. How are they affecting me? How do they affect my thought patterns? How do they affect my relationship with myself, with others, with all the ecology in the world? What role is there in that story for me? How am I casting others in that story if I take it on? And then to play with the stories, to rework them, to consider different ways of approaching things, to recast characters. The climate narrative as a whole, as I understand it, it's a story that can lead to a lot of hopelessness. Uh, It's a story that upon hearing can lead to denial. And as I understand it, the climate narrative is something like uh, humans are destroying the planet. We're acting as a cancer. The biggest quantifiable indicator of this is too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and other gases and this is causing the planet to overall heat but become wonkier in terms of climate overall and you know we need to stop emitting uh, looks like that probably isn't going to happen and so we are probably doomed That could probably sum it up something like that usually the discussions in regards to the climate narrative are something like, do you believe it or not? You know, do you believe the scientists, or are you not believing the scientists, which will make you a climate change denier? And it's kind of like your two options. So I know you've worked a lot with uh, activism and, and climate, and, you know, you're not saying that this isn't happening, that the climate isn't shifting, that we're not damaging the Earth. So I just want to put that out there because... Oh, dear listeners, if you're used to putting people in one of these two categories, <laughs> then you might put Leah in the category of not going along with a story and therefore being a climate denier. But there's subtlety here, and this is really what we're talking about when we talk about working with stories or seeing things in terms of stories, is taking a little bit of a step back, taking a few deep breaths, and just looking at the story that we're telling ourselves and that we're living with.
1: Yeah, I mean... After hearing you say that whole narrative, I was like, Oh God, let me go die in the corner now. You know, it's like who wants to live here with that idea of I'm a cancer on the planet. I mean, yeah, it's just brutal. It's a brutal, brutal narrative. It's not a story. That's, that's the one thing, you know, stories come from the earth. You know, the stories have an origin. They come from a place like step one, how is a story created? That story doesn't come from the earth. The other thing that I just want to speak to is that, yeah, I mean, my background is working as a climate activist. It it is, uh, you know, I produced the green channel at Al Gore's television network. I was right in the belly of, of really, you know, how do we tell people what's happening on the earth in a way that they can metabolize it so that they can take action. That was where I sat for many years. I I covered UN climate talks in Copenhagen and Paris, like really right there in the middle of how do we talk about this and it was through being in the middle of it and after years of that literally crawling away on all fours mean, like I, i i don't think i can be in this world anymore i don't want to be and it was like this really kind of bizarre amazing profound moment because i would sit in front of my computer doing these things that felt so important you know getting the message out and then I'd go outside and the sun is warm <laughs> and the greens, the grass is green and soft and I feel alive and happy and connected. And I'm like, hold the phone. We are not telling the whole story. We're telling the story that everything's falling apart. And, and it's like there there's a lot that needs to be addressed. We understand that. We understand that. Human population is having a real, tangible impact and consequence, perhaps on our capacity to keep living peacefully, easily, and happily on this planet. But let's let's look at the difference between a story and a narrative. The climate narrative—a great example of what a narrative is—it's it's sort of like a compass that just directs you. Hmm. Nike, just do it. United States, the the land of the free. You know, these are these are narratives. And we've kind of gotten in this weird, boggled place in our mind because we keep acting like we've got a story and we have something else. It's a great example of people with great intentions. It doesn't mean that they won't do great harm. When we look at this story, we have to jump from one side of our brain to the other, because right now we're we're looking at it from a very linear aspect, from we're using science, we're using data, we're using information. But as humans, our first language was symbol. We actually speak through archetype, and spirit speaks to us through metaphor, and all of that comes through story, and story is actually how we make meaning of the world. So we have to do this journey. So if you listen to this, I'm going to ask you to imagine we're at Everest. There are these crevasses. They actually bring ladders. They bring these big metal ladders up to Everest, and they place those across the crevasses. And so we're going to do that. We're going to cross the crevasse from one side of our brain where we talk literal linear science. You know, no no disagreement with that. We're going to cross that, and we're going to head over to our other side of the brain and land of symbol and metaphor. And let's just do a quick exercise so you can be like, well, how do I get into seeing the world as symbol and metaphor? My favorite way these days is just think about the symbolic energy of what you do in the world, the symbol of what you do in the world. So I could say, yeah, you know, Theodore, I run a school for sacred storytelling. You know, this is how I am participating in the land of consumerism, okay, or capitalism. You know, it's like, yes, this is what I do for work. But what do I really do with the essence of my life? I'm a gardener, I plant seeds, you know, I I build tools, you know, I'm a tool sharpener. Take a moment and just consider what, what is the essence of what you do? Not what you do is defined by how you make money, but the absolute essence of what you do. And that will start getting your brain into that. It'll help you cross the the ladder and kind of get into that realm of symbols. So I always say, like, if you go to Paris, you're going to learn French, right? You learn the language of that place. If we want to go into the realm of story, now we have to learn the language of story, which is symbol, archetype, and metaphor. Now that we're all hanging out, we've gone on this journey to the other side of our brain, now we can start looking and playing with this. There's some crucial challenges with this. Um, well, we first off, we can say that there's a lie right away. This, And I hate to say it like this, but it's, it's bad. I can't believe it's called it bad. <laughs> anyway, you know, I try not to be so, you know, this or that, but you know, it, it happens. And so we, we, we have this narrative that says, well, we got a race to save the planet. Okay. I remember taking a high school class in high school called Race to Save the Planet. That idea was entrenched in me in a very long time. Race, rush, go, 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 go. Okay, that's fine. I have to imagine that all of the wisdom teachers, teachings that have come through every culture through time have some real deep good wisdom in them. And that wisdom is all about slowing down. That wisdom is in going slowly. Haste makes waste. The turtle wins the race. So I'm not saying that we're not in an urgent situation. We are in a really urgent, dire situation, but is racing going to be the answer? You know, and actually COVID just showed us we slow down, the, air's, the air clears up, the corals start growing. You know, this isn't, it's, it's, it's radical because we can't imagine what it would be to go slower because the pace of life keeps going faster and faster. But when we look at like wisdom teachings about how to get through hard times or what it takes to succeed and thrive, it all talks about slowing down. We'll use less resource if we could just slow that's one aspect my biggest beef with the story is it's a very small narrative. Uh, it's, and it's got a really bad casting agent, like who cast data as the leading character, you know, seriously, like really data is a leading character, really, really bad idea. You know, data should have a role in the story. It's, it's makes a really bad lead character. You know, it's not handsome. It's unattractive. Who wants to look at data? You know, well, scientists, I shouldn't say like that, but, you know, you, you know, you're, we're playing here. It's actually a really major issue because, again, data is is very complex and it is not the story. It plays a role in the story. And I really appreciate Paul Hawken. With all of his deep, profound work is saying "Wait a second All the data that we're looking at is if everything goes wrong. If we added up all the data, if everything goes right, we'd have phenomenal images to look at. Who's producing those? As humans, we're always going to pay attention to what could hurt us. So we're naturally prone towards those super scary things, you know, but it's like we need to actually, you know, now that we're more evolutionary with our consciousness, be like, no, I actually need to pay a lot more attention to what will create thriving the point is let's pay attention to data but that it's not the only star of the show the other problem with this casting agent why I've had big issues with this casting agent is because it also casts change as the bad guy change is the very essence of our girl earth it's what she does she does nothing but change She's always changed. I live in Panga Canyon, this used to be underneath the ocean. People used to move with the seasons, you know, and when we decided that we weren't going to move anymore, and then all of a sudden we changed the rules of how we were in relationship with the natural world, and then all of a sudden when it's fluctuating and we're not moving with it, it's all become very inconvenient, and now she's our enemy, and so, again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that climate change is not creating great disruption in our lives, but I am saying that there's a part, an aspect of our collaboration and participation and engagement with Earth, which has changed, where we are no longer working with her with the seasons. It's a subtle thing when we, when we say that change is bad.
2: Hmm.
1: It's subtle, but it, it, it's pervasive and it gets straight into our consciousness when I look at a sacred story, I, I, I like, I think of it like putting on goggles and, you know, when I go snorkeling and I put on goggles, I can see things really clearly. And if I don't have goggles on, it's all kind of blurry. And I'm kind of like, I'm like, I hope there isn't a shark out there. That's going to bite me, you know? And so it's really great when we can put on our sacred storytelling goggles and start determining where the stories that are out there in service of life, that are showing me aspects of new possibility, that are giving me energy to engage life, that are giving me the energy to come up with new possibilities, To are giving me the energies to have hope, to, to come up with new solutions, to actually change different patterns and behaviors that are showing not to be so great on this planet, You know, to fight back against the systems that I live within that aren't serving this planet. You know, that's a sacred story. But there's a lot of stories that are out there that are planting fear, that are planting separation, that are planting hate. And those should be really examined. And they're worthy of saying who's creating these stories and why. What is it ultimately serving?
0: So Leah, I'd like to ask you about your relationship with old stories. So some storytellers, they tend to adhere to the old myths, uh, feeling that these are time-tested. These are like river stones that have been worn over time, and they have a great wisdom uh, to give us, although they may not be perfect, and they may have you know different flaws from the times that they were uh, spoken in. So I'd like to ask you, about your relationship with old stories uh, compared to this kind of listening and observing in the present time about the stories from the time that we're in relationship between them.
1: You know, I got to be homeschooled in the fourth grade. There was a, it was a homeschooling program. It was Calvert homeschooling, and they would send you a box of books. And I don't remember anything that I learned that year except for the Greek myths. And there was this book of Greek myths. And I fell in love with those stories. It's probably how I fell in love with storytelling. But that was about the extent of my relationship with the old stories. I think at a very, very young age, it was really about what were the stories that wanted to come through me and really being someone that was listening to the muse and listening to the earth and listening for what is emerging in these times and i really feel like you know when when i set out to create this curriculum for the school for sacred storytelling i created this wheel of all the different kinds of storytelling archetypes and that there are so many of us and we hold these different threads you know and god bless those people who are the cantadoras who are who are carrying the old stories you know because really the australians say if we don't carry the old stories into the present, the future will not exist. So it's like we understand that there's, that there's something very, very meaningful and important to our humanity to be able to have this collective memory in the, in some memory keepers that hold those old stories. And then there's also the midwives, the people who are catching and birthing the stories of our times. Um, and then there's the archeologists who are going back. I think I've found some strange marriage in some ways where, I do work with a couple of old stories, but in a very different way. And I'm very, very careful about how I approach old stories, mostly because we don't really know how they got here. And just because they're still here doesn't mean that they're trustworthy. You know, just like every older person isn't truly an elder. And and I've heard some really respectable storytellers carrying some old stories, and I'm just like, hmm, is that really, is that really the teaching that we want to be carrying into this time? I need to speak out of two sides of my mouth because we're also not trying just to be politically correct all the time. You know, we're not trying just to be in our own consciousness and evolution. You know, it's like, it's really incredible to be able to hear a story that was came from another time and hear what it was like and what they were doing and not have to change it because that's just how it was, you know. At the same time, I was doing storytelling rituals and my partner really wanted to work with Sleeping Beauty. And I literally sat down and cried. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't work with old stories. It's just not what I do. And some other part of me was like, bucket up, lamb. You know, it's like, you're doing this, you're doing this, you know, this event. You're going to work with stories initiation. And you've been asked to work with an old story. So figure out your way, just figure it out. And so I was like, okay, okay, I can figure this out. And I started listening And I really started listening to that truth that in me that was crying out that said, Hey, my medicine is not just to carry an old story. My medicine is to really look at and listen for what are the bones in the story? Where's the wisdom? Where's the teaching? And because I'm also this, like this midwife of the stories of our time, then like, well, what, how does this story want to live in our time now? Like what is the story speaking to our time? So, Sleeping Beauty. Oh, what an amazing story. I was so grateful to have studied it. What I understand about coming to any old story, it's worth coming and really going back and finding as many different cultural references, as many different places around the world, because then you'll start to find the bones of the story, the skeleton of it. You know, we each, you know, it's like, just like us humans around the earth, like we all got the same skeleton, you know, and then we have our our cultural flair and our color and our accents and all that. And I feel like, you know, stories really do represent that. And so there are many core teachings that are similar bones in many stories around the globe. And this one in particular is, gosh, it's got so much wisdom for these times. The story that I ended up telling was this king and queen, they really wanted to have a baby, and they tried everything, they tried IVF, They did you know and nothing was working. You know, and in, a, in a desperate moment, they went off into the forest, and they were just pleading with life itself, and the fairies answered, the fairies of the forest, and they said, well, of course, you know, we'll grant you this wish of life, you know, if it's in our power to give life, then we will give you life, you know, and so they blessed them, and sure enough, the baby was born. And and the king and queen, you know, they were so enthralled, you know, with their with their cool their coolness and, and, and like just they were taking all kinds of pictures on Instagram about how awesome they were and look at their new baby and look at the new maternity clothes and, and look at their cool friends and, and they threw this like really big bash and they didn't invite the fairies. They forgot. Well, this here we have a very, very old teaching, which is that you can't exclude those from the table of communion and not expect a curse to come across everybody. It's a really, it's a profound teaching. And, and I think about this teaching all of the time because this particular piece is really, there's an old, old teaching about what it is to to not be inclusive, not include others and so when those you know fairies weren't included well you know the wrath of a woman scorned you know we all know that one and so you know a curse was cast and so but then okay now we have this opportunity to look at there's a language that's in our in our reference today where so many people are saying that they're waking up right so we have this cultural metaphor that's living through us and then we have the story about who's going to wake her up, right? And the, and the savior and the role of the savior, right? So there's so many different plays between the masculine and the feminine. Someone and her riches and they, they couldn't, nothing would happen. And, you know, all these different, different ones came to try to wake her up. And then finally this one came and when he got really close, he too began to fall into this meditative slumber in her presence where he met the demons of his beingness. And in his consciousness, he he came into to get to know all the aspects of himself, and he found a way to love all of what he was. And with that love, and with that kiss, it was what woke her up. When a curse falls on all, a curse actually comes on the collective. When when what is the thing that will truly wake us up? You know, in that story, it's like. Look, it was it was hijacked by Grimms. You know, Jacqueline Bushnell has an amazing class. It's a free class where she really gets she really knows the whole history of fairy tales. It's a great class, you know. I'm I'm just listening. I come in and I and I'm a devotee to stories and I and I get very humble and I and I know that I don't know anything and I just say, guide me, tell me how I can honor you while bringing my medicine to you. And so what I've learned is you have to respect the bones of a story. You know, whether or not they're acting like an elder or not, they've been around for a long time, and so they deserve our respect. And so you have to really listen to what are the bones of the story. What is what is the truth of it? What is the wisdom that's been managed to stay alive, even though it's been colonized and harassed and religiousized and all these things? And say, okay, wow, there's something in you that's still here. And now, how can I help you speak even more to the times that we're in, you know? And and deeply listen. So that's yeah, that's my relationship with old stories, and and I really have a lot of respect for people who are devoted to carrying them and to keeping them alive because. Um, without them, I don't know who we'd be.
0: Mm. Yeah. Thank you. And I know you've been working with, as you did with the story of climate change, as you talked about, you've been working with story of initiation, mm-hmm. uh, which of course shows up in many different stories in many different forms we might say in an overall way there's a story stories of initiation so i invite you to speak a bit about that what what is initiation uh are there different initiations at different stages of life such as into adulthood and into elderhood you know how have you seen this story play out in the old tales and in also the times we're in, I just mentioned as well to put in the mix that there's a little controversy around the idea that a person in modern times in a culture that doesn't have elders guiding people through the process of initiation, there's a controversy on whether people in such cultures can truly be initiated or whether it's a kind of a cultural appropriation to claim you know, to be initiated Um, I'd bring up Francis Weller personally that he speaks about yes it is great if you have that support of a really intact ceremonially literate culture to support you in initiation however we can't take that away from people who don't have that and that what we tend to get instead is a rough initiation where life itself initiates a person and it's more dangerous and it's more risky and messier. Uh, and yet it can also have this effect of, I suppose, bringing person to another stage of life. But with all that in the mix, I invite you to, to come in and discuss about your thoughts about initiation and the work you're doing with that. When yeah.
1: I mean, he brings up such a, a, a great point and it's like, Oh, what grief it's like, we'll just never know what we don't know. We have to live with that mystery. Like, it's like knowing that once upon a time there were 20 elephants and now there's one. And you'll never know what it was like to stand among elephants, you know, but you know the one, you know, that's where we are. And so what What can we do with what we have is really the big question. And, you know, every culture has had some form of initiation. And so, you know, the ones that remain in the culture that I live in, you know, it's like... There's baby naming ceremonies. There's 13 turning 13, that coming of age, you know, prom is an initiation, you know, Um, college is an initiation or choosing not to go to college is an initiation, you know, but marriage, classic initiation, having a child, you know, what's happening in all of these is that they're thresholds in life and, you know what I understand about initiations is that there are basic there are basic components, and, and there's one is that um, there's going to be the component of mystery. No initiation will be fully understood before you enter it. You just can't know what's about to happen. Otherwise, it's not really initiation. You know, so mystery is a part of it. Um, there's a surrender. You know, there's a letting go or having something taken. You know, I'm living in California where there have been so many fires. I've known so many. It's so commonplace now to know people who have lost their homes. You know, so in that case, their initiation, they were initiated by life. Something was taken. And and you never know what it's going to be. You don't know what's going to be taken. You don't know what's going to be surrendered until you're in that moment. And then there's that real discovery of how are you going to live through this? Who are you going to be because of it? You know, and who are you going to become because of it? And initiations aren't pretty, you know. They're not. A, they're not pretty, you know. And oftentimes you'll you might see someone, and oh man, there aren't they unlucky, or aren't they struggling, or aren't they what of dot? And that makes me. It just burns my bonnet. I'm like, give them some credit. They're they're meeting some life, and they're getting initiated. You know, like give them some support. Remind them of who they are. You know, yeah sometimes life is a bitch, and you go through some really hard things. And if you've known through someone for a long time, and you see them have to go through the same pattern over and over again, oh my gosh, like, what a gift it would be to be like, man, your soul is really committed to learning this, huh? You know, like, how can we help people around us in an uninitiated world, you know, in uninitiated times begin to have that framework of like, Oh yeah, I must really want to learn this because I'm not going to go on to the next level until I do. And when when that happens, you know, I don't know about you, but like when I, if I'm in a pattern where I keep learning the same thing over and over again, it it's like there was a time when I'd go into shame spiral. You know, I'd get really angry at myself, really down on myself. Well, all of that doesn't get you anywhere, right? But when a lesson comes around again, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> It's you again. Well, (laughs) we must, we're supposed to be buddies, you know, and and maybe that's just the thrill of getting older, you know, and getting to see things and be like, okay, I must be really committed to this lesson. Okay, now I'm just going to sit back and be humble, because you're going to keep coming. I got it. I got your number. And so what do you have to teach me? And in that way, it's kind of beautiful because I don't have to be resistant. I don't have to be ashamed. I don't have to be blaming myself, you know, and so we can hold each other through these moments. But yeah, isn't it beautiful if you were in a a culture where you're formally in an initiation experience? You know, people see you warring and fighting and becoming that warrior and they see you struggling to get hard to get strong and they see the pain that you're going through in that process. But, man, you're an initiation, you know, but without the context, it just looks like a lot of suffering. And so, you know, maybe hold each other and knowing that these are probably some of the most extraordinary. I mean, as a planet, we're being initiated right now. This mega negative of climate change, of great change on the earth. Yes, we are being asked to give some things up, to surrender something, or it will be taken. You know, I don't know about you, but I always prefer to have authority and say, here, take that. I can have less. I'd love to have less, actually. I'm going to give that up. And now what do I discover in myself? So coming back down to the the stage of initiation where you make this, something is taken, something is surrendered. It's not necessarily easy, and it's probably darn right hard. But, But then something is ripped open. Your heart is ripped open. Some part of you exposed. And now you get access to a part of you that you never would have in your entire life had this not happened. You know, it's like a lot of us get initiated through major health crises. When I was in my late 20s, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. They had to cut across my throat. My larynx was a very extreme case. And they told me I might lose my voice. Now that's an initiation. (laughs) That told me what I was made of. And, And in that moment, I had this extraordinary thing that happened where, you know, up until that point, I was really good at playing the victim game. Like I could out victim story anybody in the room. It was a sport and it was a bad habit. It was a bad habit because it's how I learned how to get attention when I couldn't get attention to other places. And so all of a sudden there I was at the, at the keystone moment of truly being able to wear the tiara of victimhood, you know, cancer at 29, you know, to, to, to some other part of me, clicked on it and was like, oh, hell no, hell no, Uh, no, I don't want to live as a victim in my life anymore. Ka-ching, out the door it went, and I found some other part of myself that I had no idea was there. Thank God, she's so much more fun to be with, you know, and it's like, and she had a job, she had a job, and her job was not to sob and feel bad for herself throughout the whole thing, not that there wasn't great amounts of fear and all that, but her job was to make everybody laugh. (laughs) it was just, it was a super simple task. Every nurse practitioner, every doctor, every appointment I had one task, and that was to make everybody laugh. I came out of my surgery on anesthesia, telling jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Something deeply entrenched inside of me. There was there was some other aspect that was ready to come on board and meet life with not taking it all so seriously, having a little bit more play with it, you know. And not to say that I wasn't going through terror and fear and, and all the and all the things that you go through. That was all there too. You know, not to say that depression didn't come for me. That 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 came too. But these moments, it's like they're they're extraordinary moments when we, when we, when we get to come into healthy relationship with fear. And I think initiation does have some aspect of meeting fear, you know, and, and I know that in my life, when I've run away from my fear, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and chases me down and like flattens me. And then I'm just squashed on the earth with fears, knees in my back. And it's, Sucks, you know, but what I've learned is that when I actually turn and I look at fear in the face, courage stands on one side of me, bravery stands beside me, I've got all these beings that show up, they're like, Oh, yeah, we're with you. You know, I've got all these allies that show up. And so it's like, it's way more fun to face fear. When when you realize that there are energies that will emerge and live through you. You know, so it's harder to do this on our own. It's true. It's just freaking hard to figure this out on our own when we don't have those elders there, you know, really consciously preparing us and helping us and supporting us. And to me, this is where storytelling comes in. And, you know, as you said, I'm really drawn to more of working with story as an initiatory act, because, you know, if you don't understand that you were initiated by life or that you chose an initiation And if your story doesn't change, then you then you didn't get it. You didn't get the initiation. And one of the things that that is real about initiations is that there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees that you're going to make it out alive. You know, and we've all seen people really easy examples. We've all seen people fall in love. Right? It's easy to fall in love. You know, heartbreak is a part of love. It's like you know, trees. The nature of trees is that they're going to grow. The nature of love is that it's going to involve heartbreak. It's just like, it's just the nature of love, you know? And I had loved my friend Craig when I told him one time that I was so heartbroken. He said, oh, you mean your heart's broken open? Isn't that great? And I was like, yeah, my heart is broken open. There's an opportunity for it to get bigger. In that, st- in that situation, I had to learn forgiveness. Look, that was an initiation around betrayal. And not everyone makes it through these alive, meaning that not everybody goes through that initiation of love and heartbreak and still is able to keep loving afterwards. Some people, their heart shuts down and they don't ever love again because they understand that it's dangerous business. And loving is dangerous business. It's just that's the nature of love, you know, in this beautiful way. And so... When we have story at our back and we're working with story as part of the initiatory process, we get to really claim all the different aspects of the journey. You know, if I was still telling you about that day that I got, you know, had thyroid cancer and if I was telling you it the same way all those years, I would still be there in that place. But if I come back and I come back through and talk to the journey of what got me through and if I get to that Wow, yeah, what was surrendered what what was taken, you know, and if I get to wow, what was discovered, who did I get to, oh my God, this whole other medicine in me came on board, you know, and get to claim that, and we claim it in our stories, and we get witnessed by our communities, you know, and like one of the one of the secret initiations that I feel like that's happening right now. Is, is that um, so many of us are coming out with our own gifts and offerings outside of the normal workforce, you know, where we're not going to other people to tell us what to do and make money. We're saying, you know what, we actually have something that's of value and we're going to go out into the world and we're going to offer it. And, and by the way, it's a value and deserves to be paid for. That is a terrifying initiatory experience. And it is an initiation you, there's some part of you that, that has to be surrendered. You know, you're going to face massive fear, and and in the process of really stepping into the truth of your medicine, of your gift, of what you're offering, it's like you've got to find real courage, you know, and you've got to come face to face with rejection. You're going to battle with all different kinds of things. It's not an accident that Hollywood is covered. With warring movies right now, our consciousness is in all different kinds of battles and they're acting it all out through our stories. Our stories are just reflecting what's here in our consciousness. And so, You know, it's like this one of coming out with your gift. It's like, yeah, it's like we're battling all different kinds of things to make it through that initiation, whether it be the fear of rejection or the not knowing that you're really something to worth. Or as a woman, you know, it's like for so many years, it's been entrenched in us that our value is around being a housemaker, making a baby, uh, being a sexual object, like those are things. Now, all of a sudden, we come out and we say, actually, I'm valuable for something else. You know, so many men are going through these initiations where they're like, wait a second, I, I have a value. And maybe it's not just earning money so that my family can survive. You know, I'm not just a breadwinner. I have something more to give, you know, and that's a whole other journey. You know, so it's like we are collectively going through this, this massive initiation of saying that I'm more than just a dollar sign or commodity to be worked for. And so that is, that's one of the places that i'm really drawn to work with more and more because you know i might be making it through on some other side but you know who knows i've <laughs> been at it for a while and it took me a while to realize wait a second this is an un, un you know unrecognized initiation and to be able to be witnessed by our community to say i knew you when i knew you when you were just discovering yourself i knew you were, i knew you when, when you were just you know catching the scent of what you were i remember when you first decided to make your first offering you know and and wow now you're doing this and this and 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 to be witnessed in your own becoming is a profound thing and it commits you to your community it deepens your roots it deepens the web
0: really striking me that these movements from one part of life to another I mean it's not just two initiations in life is it it's not like okay one's into adulthood and the other's maybe into elderhood and then it's kind of the initiation of death or initiation of birth there's many different there's a polyphony of initiations going on um, thresholds maybe another way to say it, like a threshold and then passing into a, a new stage of life, but there's always this difficulty and there's always something to be let go. There's always a risk of failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always danger has to be has to be. Yeah, so I wonder as we come towards a close, if you want to share something about how you work with uh, with this, in particular, in your story workshops, and what offerings you have coming up, uh, we are now in late October in 2022. But if people are listening at other times, they can I'll link your website in there and they can see what's going on. But for those who are listening now, if you want to speak a bit about yeah, how you work with these principles in the workshops and especially about what's coming right up.
1: Um, well, I mean, the very nature of, of so many of our classes integrate this this aspect of storytelling, and storytelling itself is a journey. So every story you ever tell will, will tell some aspect of your journey of who you were then and who you are now and how you got there. We're about to do teaching stories, and teaching stories initially was designed because I heard a Lakota man speaking about how his tradition had almost lost the relationship to teaching stories. You know, which is that, you know, when raising children, you get to call on these stories as your extra aunties and babysitters. With his case, he was trying to teach his three-year-old some things of how to be and how not to be. And, and so they called on good otter and bad otter. And there was a story of good otter, bad otter. So now he's, he's in a different conversation. He's not saying, stop that, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. He's calling on the story. Hey, are you being good otter or bad otter right now? Completely different conversation when you get to engage story as a family member. As a, as a co-teacher and how to be in the world. So we're going to work with making those kinds of stories. But because life is fun and let's keep evolving, and because I just made a really, really big mistake in my life that I had a lot to learn from, um, I was like, oh, this is another kind of teaching story that we don't have enough of, you know, where we really consciously look at the times in our lives where we're like, yeah, that really sucked. I would never want any of my friends to have to go through that. So I'm going to have some humble pie. I'm going I'm going to not make myself look good by telling you about this thing. And and what I love calling them is not mistakes because mistakes again shame spiral, right? But missteps. Because I don't know about you, but I love this game of trying to be in alignment. I feel like my whole life is learning about how to be in alignment, you know. And sometimes I'm in alignment and I'm like, wow, I feel so good. And sometimes I step out of alignment. And I'm like, oh, that feels really bad compared to being in alignment. I want to get back in, you know. And so these teaching stories are those moments of when you when you fell out of alignment and you learned about why it sucks and how you got there and then how you got back in. And so that we can be evolving our collective consciousness and not have to all make the same mistakes again. So that's happening in November. You know, in January, we've Speak Your Spark. Then we've got Cantadoric here in the old stories. And then we have um, Vision Stories, which I just love. It's one of my favorite classes. And it's the way that we end that semester. And that will be the last time I'm teaching that particular curriculum. Because as you know, we're going to be opening up to more ways for community circles and story circles. And for um, more different, diverse ways for people to come and be in relation to these stories. The, The initiation class is going to start up in December. And it's going to be a three-month journey. And it's going to be for people who really, like, they, they know they've been initiated by life. You know, they, they are stepping fully in and they're saying yes to an initiation. And they might have been on the other end of it, end of it and not had it been fully recognized. You know, one of the women that's going to be in the program um, was dealing with eating disorders. You know, she said, no one recognized me for being able to heal that. I want that to be recognized in in my case, like launching a sacred storytelling school, you know, it's like, you know, I'm not part of any big industry that's ever going to say, wow, you did that. You know, and not that we need the wow, but something of of some kind of recognition of that. We said yes to life, you know, and that's what, that's what I feel like commitments are. That's what a marriage is. It's like, you're saying, yes, I'm committing. I'm committing my life to something and so, for people that know that they that they are in the process of or have committed to them, themselves to some kind of aspect of life that require that they cross a massive threshold, we're going to go through a process that in- includes ritual with the land, includes any reparations, and includes coming out to tell the story in a beautiful, storied way. While also getting to, we're choosing a, one particular archetype that's really walking with you through this process, so you also really get to you know, engage um, and fully get, get intimate with an archetype as you um, embody and walk through this this initiation path. And we'll come out and tell the story. I can't tell you where our final retreat will be because it's, it's coming into emergence right now. Um, I have a dream of where it could be, but we're finding out the details. But we are going to meet in person to do the final ceremonies for a week in person. That much I know is true. Yeah, and then I also host a monthly uh, Hour of the Wolf Soul Story Council, and that's a way of just being really together in this old-storied way, which it's a form of mystic divination, and we do wisdom weaving, and it's a really sweet, fun way to start off the new month and set some intentions in community. And then um, this is going to be news to you because I said I wasn't going to do this, but now I am, but we're going to do Story of the Witch on uh, November 17th. And that's going to be a full on online story ceremony. And so in that way, we follow a pretty strict protocol for how to host a ceremony online. It's a beautiful story that was actually inspired by I was I was in my initiatory circle, I was in a 13 moon priestess training. And um, one of the women in my circle was saying, that she really had this ongoing fear inside of her body that didn't make any sense to her about speaking out and speaking um, speaking out, speaking about what she knew, speaking about all these things, because that somewhere in the back of her consciousness, the story of the witches was still haunting her, you know, about how all these women were hunted down and all this. And so I went in for a deep listen and we listened for the one story of that one woman who, rather than give up her knowledge to the fire, she chose to give it to the sea so it could be reconnected and collected many years later. It's a really beautiful story. We come together to receive it. And we I work with Kelsey Barrett, who's a, my partner in crime and er, my herbalist in crime, my herbalist in delight. There, there's got to be a better language ring around that. And um, she brings that. Deep, deep, wedded relationship to plant wisdom, and she leads us through some different processes together as community. And uh, I should say it's non-hallucinogenic. I feel like you have to say that now when you talk about plant medicine. There's non-hallucinogenic uh, herbal connections with plants, and uh, yeah, that'll be November 17th.
0: So. Yeah, when you're speaking, I'm getting this sense of the ingredients of culture coalescing. Mm. You know, this this sense that yes, culture can be broken, and yet there's this, just as we as individuals have a self-healing tendency and capacity, we tend toward healing. So too must there be within a broken culture, some tendency towards health, some tendency towards creating elders and rites of passage and gatherings of people who confirm, who confirm. Uh, these passages that we each go through because that that confirmation is important it's, it's not an ego thing it's a cultural community thing that uh you know we can go through a great transition and yet to be welcomed back in in our new form is an essential ingredient and so i i see what you're speaking about is this Yes, a full admitting of the situation we're in, not trying to pretend anything, uh, but yet this healing is underway in many different ways. And uh, I see that you're working with this, this kind of coalescing of cultural elements, which is very beautiful.
1: What you just said was just so beautiful. I just really appreciate it in that that we have that natural inclination to want to heal, that we're regenerative in nature. Oh, I I guess I'll end with this little tiny piece of a story. I was in the rainforest of Ecuador earlier this year, and I was speaking with this man and, and, you know, they were talking about how so many of their indigenous villages have been colonized and now Spanish is the main language and now their languages are going extinct. So in in one lifetime, a, a grandmother can't speak to her grandson,
2: yeah.
1: and so her stories were lost. I was having all this like grief. I was like literally just I was just sitting there like a sponge. I was like, tell me everything, you know. Got my friend. I was like, I just just tell me everything so I can hear it. And he's telling me his stories, and and I and I'm getting half of them, and I'm also getting I'm not of this culture. I'm not of this land. I'm not hearing the story in its language. I. I am getting fragments of of what the story is really probably trying to say. But in me, I was also just feeling this great grief of like, wow, all that's been lost, like all that's going to be lost. And then something else come on board and you're like, God, what what a fine example of what a broken mentality that I had, that all of those stories live in those grandmothers' and grandfathers' bones. And those bones are going back into the earth where those stories came from. And somebody caught those stories. And somebody can catch them again. And so, how do we be with these wildly changing times? What do we need now more than ever before? Is that capacity to listen. And not to... Listen to just Instagram or what I'm going to post next or, you know, like the the distraction. You know, I mean, it feels like to, to truly be a listener in this time, it, you've got to be a warrior of the mind, you know, to create that space. I think that's what wants to end. A Call for listening. I forgot to say that I do do private coaching. (laughs) I call it story priestessing. Thank you so much, Theodore. This has been just as you are deep and thought provocative and many good wanderings to wander down together. Thank you.
0: Oh, thank you. Each of Leah's classes finishes with a storytelling festival, where the students who've been working on their respective stories, doing different exercises in the course of the course, come together and tell those stories to each other. I'd like to finish this episode with a recording of my story from the class Unity, which recently finished. This is the story I created for the class, and after the class, I re-recorded it, made it a little bit longer, added some music and such. This is a guided meditation meets choose-your-own-adventure telling. So before you listen, I invite you to find a quiet space. You might pause this recording and wait until you have that moment. You'll be asked to close your eyes and enter into a meditation Where there's a lot of room for creativity and your imagination within. I invite you to take some deep breaths and ground into the core of your body, down into the soil beneath you, down into the core of the earth. And also upward into your head, into your mind, and outward into the cosmos, in which this earth spins and belongs, as do you. You find yourself at an entrance, and you can imagine this as you'd like, as your imagination informs you to. This may be a portal, or an opening into a tree, or into the earth, or into the sky. Find what kind of entrance your imagination guides you to visualize, and embrace that. Now above this entrance, there's a sign, and this sign says, weird. Those who enter here will be deemed weird. You know, and I'm not going to blame you if you turn back, if you don't want that social label attached with you, ongoing. won't blame you, friend. But if you continue with me, that's good too. And you enter into this entrance beneath the sign, And find yourself in a tunnel. Now this could be a tunnel underneath the ground. This could be a tunnel with glass sides. This could be a tunnel over the ground. Or under the water. Or in the sky. Allow your imagination to guide you in this. And you move through this tunnel, and the tunnel has transparent walls. And you can see outside these walls a beautiful ecosystem. Which ecosystem this is depends on you, on your imagination. It may be one that's dear to you, one that you've been in, spent time in. It could be one that you're not as familiar with. But let your mind populate this ecosystem with creatures and plants, the movement of air, water. If it's underwater, then with coral, perhaps, kelp waving, in the ocean currents. Take a moment to fill out this ecosystem with sights and scents and textures. And you find that one creature is coming close to you, outside the tunnel, but just near, near to you so near you can almost touch And there is a barrier between you. Yet you can see the texture of this creature's limbs. See their eyes looking into yours. This creature from this ecosystem. And the tunnel dissolves and the creature encompasses you, enters you becomes you. Their limbs become your limbs. You can feel their muscles tensing and releasing. You can see through their eyes, taste through their mouth. You feel the generative fire within them, this desire to create more creatures of their own kind. You feel their hunger, their hunger for the food that's found in this place, Where they dwell, and you feel a pain, a pain that this food is lessening, that the water and the air are growing caustic, acidic, that this wondrous home of theirs is diminishing, for there is a great hunger in the world. There is a hungry force that is spreading and spreading and devouring the home of all living beings. The creature moves away and you find yourself outside the tunnel now. There is no tunnel. It is dissolved and you are in this ecosystem. You move freely, wandering across the land or swimming in the water. You see the other creatures moving around you. You feel the currents of liquid or air on your skin. You breathe deep. You wander for some time until you see in the distance a human. And she is sitting on a stone by a creek. She's an old woman, a hag, a crone, a witch. Yet you might want to put down that pointy hat if you've given her one in your imagination for she is a woman of the land. She is a woman who is intimate with every plant and creature and scent and texture of this place. She is clothed in the skins of the creatures of this land and before taking the life of each of those creatures she was sure to behold them, to enter into a moment of love for them. And only then, facing her deed, did she take their life. And she carries a pinch of pain from each of them with her. Not regret, for she did what she must, but a pain that is part of her honoring them, her carrying them on in her memory. Her pouch of herbs is full and varied, and she needs nothing that she cannot find in this land. You sit and she looks at you and meets your eyes. And in this moment, she surrounds you, enters you, becomes you. You feel those creatures' skins on your skin. You feel the wool from the wild creatures on your breast. You sense their memories that she is carrying with her. And you feel the pinch of pain that she holds to honor each one. And there is another pain that she carries, one more recent, one connected with a human, with a man, with a king. She did not want to curse him. But he dug up the sacred groves with no reverence whatsoever. He mined into the earth. He killed creatures without honoring them, without needing their bodies, only for sport. He took more than was his to take, and he did no duty in return. And so she cursed him. She cursed him that this hunger of his would deepen that this hunger of his would overtake him and so it did he ate everything in his palace in his city in his land devouring all that he could get his mouth around until one day when he was wolfing down some huge beast that he had killed. He bit his own finger and enjoyed the taste of the blood. So he bit deeper, bit his hand, his arm. And yes, finally the king devoured himself and this rapacious hunger that had been a blight to the land Inevitably crumbled inward, its own doing. The old woman, the witch, she did not want to curse the king, and she does not regret it. Yet she carries a pang of pain about his death in his honor, just as she does for the animals. She looks away and you return to yourself, your own body, your own senses and memories. She smiles and looks to the water flowing nearby. She touches this water of the creek and invites you to do the same. And as you touch it, as you put your fingers in and your hand and feel the smooth liquid flowing around you. You know that the king has bathed here in these waters, that these waters once were inside him, flowing inside the organs of his body. You know that the creatures that this witch has killed, once bathed in these waters, once drank here, that these waters flow through you, that these waters flow through clouds and aquifers, that these waters evaporate from oceans. These waters have flowed through all creatures and hold the memories of each one. And these memories, fleeting, one or many at a time, move through you. All these beings are akin to you they're of you and you of them there is no villain no opposite no terrible quality that does not dwell in you no wonderful quality that does not dwell alongside it there can be no judgment only deep empathy with all that made all these beings do and be as they are, as they were, as they will be. And you lift your hands from the water, and the witch, she nods, and you close your eyes And feel yourself moving back, 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 back. Back to the entrance of this tunnel and the sign above that says those who go this way will be deemed weird. And you recall that the word weird is connected with foreseeing with a deeper seeing and standing there by that entrance you come to understand that at any moment you can reach out and empathize with another being however different they may seem from you however far away in the map of the territory of consciousness you both dwell in the same terrain. You both dwell in the same land. You're akin to each other. And with this gift of deep empathy, smoldering like a blessed ember in your heart, you open your eyes, take a few deep breaths, Return to the space around you, to the sensations of your body, your thoughts. And in this day, if you'd like, you can carry this empathy with you, with those you disagree with, those you do, and especially the creatures of this world, our kin and the lives they are living, the troubles they are experiencing, and what they may ask of us. And yeah. yeah. listening, If you'd like to hear more of these guided meditation, choose your own adventure stories, as well as songs and recordings of the full interviews from the podcast, then head on over to my Patreon, which is Story Paths there in Patreon. Any support you give there is, of course, gratefully appreciated, and it goes towards the time and the expenses of creating this podcast. To sign up for upcoming creative workshops that I'll be leading, you can find the mailing list link. And of course, to learn about Leah's courses, you can find that link also in the show notes below. I do highly recommend her courses for those who are interested in thinking in terms of story. That's it for now. Best wishes and until next time. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part... I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donohue. may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.